I, I'd like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Thursday, June 13th, 2013. Again, my name is William Selby with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call. We are honored to have as our guest Brigadier General John Broadmeadow. Uh, Brigadier General Broadmeadow is currently dual-hatted as both the Commanding General First Marine Expedi Expeditionary Brigade and Commanding General First Marine Logistics Group, uh, One Marine Expeditionary Force, and leading the Marine effort during Dawn Blitz 2013. Uh, we will be discussing Exercise Dawn Blitz today. A note to the bloggers on the line, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your questions. Please keep your questions succinct and to the point, and if you're not asking a question, we ask that you please place your phone on mute. We will be taking questions from the bloggers in order that you join the phone call after uh, Brigadier General Broadmeadow's opening statement, which, uh, sir, the floor is yours for that. Terrific. Thanks, Glenn. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to come out and talk about Dawn Blitz. This is our opportunity to enhance uh, a number of expeditionary skills, uh, most particularly in enhancing the relationship of the, the Navy Marine Corps team here between uh, the 3rd Fleet and the 1st uh, Marine Expeditionary Force, uh, more specifically the 1st Marine Expeditionary Brigade um, and our, our partner in the Navy, the, the Expeditionary Strike Group 3. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we get a number of coalition partners that reflect uh, our desire to enhance those relationships that we have, particularly here in the Pacific. Uh, most specifically with the Japanese, the New Zealanders, the Canadians, and others uh, that are here as observers, uh, as well as participating in a full range of exercises from um, maritime prepositioning force operations where we brought a, a ship uh, out of Diego Garcia and, uh, and off the coast, and we're offloading it now as part of our expeditionary capabilities. We're enhancing some of our amphibious skills uh, by coming off of amphibs uh, uh, both uh, with U.S. Marines, as well as some of our coalition partners. Uh, we're uh, experimenting with some interoperability between us and the Japanese, specifically by uh, landing our MV-22 Osprey onto uh, two of the Japanese amphibious ships that are here with us uh, as a demonstration of, of both HADR capability as well as versatility between coalition partners. Uh, in addition to that, we've got a, a number of uh, basic blocking and tackling, what I call blocking and tackling military skills going on, enhancing those, those tactical skills necessary uh, for a broad range of military operations out there. So I hope that's a, a pretty good overview of what the exercise is, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Andrew, you were first on the line. You can go ahead with your question. General, good morning. Andrew Rubin, Weatherneck Magazine. Appreciate you taking the time, sir. You're welcome, Andrew. General, the uh, Japanese Constitution calls for the, uh, their military to operate in a defensive posture. What is the scenario you and the Japanese forces are working against in Dawn Blitz? Um, Andrew, we don't, we don't talk uh, specifically about, uh, about scenarios, and in reality there, there isn't a scenario here. This is, uh, this is really enhancing uh, our interoperability with a close treaty ally in the Pacific. Um, we're, we're conducting a full range of, uh, of activities, just getting used to how do you command and control forces aboard ships, how do, you, how do two nations talk to each other over various comm systems, uh, and, then, and then, as I said before, conducting those, those basic military skills with each other, amphibious skills. We're also doing skills ashore, 
Uh, we're talking HADR type operations as well as, as uh, other military uh, skills that uh, that uh, are important to understand how each other how how each other works. If I could follow up, do they understand then the concept of blue green team? You know that's a that's a great question. Uh, the, the Japanese have have traditionally not uh, well they don't have a, a Marine Corps per se. Um, like many of our coalition partners, uh, their concept of joint isn't as refined as ours. Uh, so while they understand the need to work together, um, they have a very rudimentary capability uh, that that they're growing, uh, and they have a strong desire to grow it. They they understand. Uh, primarily from, from their operations in Tomodachi, where they actually put together a, a joint task force, that, that joint operations are important. And as we're seeing in a number of places uh, around the Pacific in particular, our partners are understanding the need for amphibious-type capability and bringing together those ground, air, and sea forces together into a, a very important skill set. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. And Chuck, you were next on the line. Yes, good morning, General Chuck Simmons from America's North Shore Journal. One of the things that, that I noted after the Japanese uh, earthquake and tsunami was the remarkable lack of, of some uh, uh, amphibious skills or, or, or uh, uh, response skills on the part of the Japanese forces, considering that they are an island nation. Uh, is this exercise going to kind of uh, uh, give them a little bit more expertise uh, and ability to move forces uh, around in the event of a humanitarian uh, crisis in their in their homeland? Yeah, Chuck, most definitely. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was the deputy commander for one of the joint task forces. Uh, that responded to Operation Tomodachi, and I got to see the Japanese respond firsthand. Uh, I will tell you first off as an editorial here that uh, um, their response, while, while maybe they didn't have the same range of capabilities of ours, uh, was, was truly an uh, 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 overwhelming sense of, of caring for their people and, and my counterparts both in the Japanese Army and in the Japanese Navy that I work very closely with, uh, used every single piece of skill that they had at their disposal to, to take care of their people and, and did a remarkable job at it. And I think that was a little bit unsung, quite frankly. Uh, and it was overwhelmed by some of the other coverage about uh, the nuclear reactor and the rest. Um, but that said, I, I think you're on to something there that, uh, that, that maybe their amphibious skills uh, your, their lack of amphibious skills, their lack of amphibious capability was highlighted, while at the same time our amphibious capability with uh, the Marine Expeditionary group, uh, Unit and the, and the Amphibious Ready Group that was, uh, that was out there in Okinawa uh, was able to respond very, very quickly with a light footprint ashore while, while still sustaining, um, you know, providing some life-sustaining uh, needs uh, that, that couldn't be provided otherwise. So it's a backdrop to everything we're doing here. I will tell you that it's not exclusively an HADR scenario, uh, but Tomodachi uh, and the utility of amphibious forces uh, in HADR is, a, is one of those constant undertones in everything that we do with the Japanese out here. And thank you, sir. And next was Dale. 
Uh, good morning, sir. This is Dale Kissinger from MilitaryAvenue.com. Um, I'm curious about how many observers are there from the seven observing countries and at what level, um, what rank. Uh, can you give me a total for the participants? Um, yeah, the, uh, the Japanese have about 1,000 folks out here. Uh, the, the Canadians and New Zealanders have company-sized organizations, so you know, somewhere in the neighborhood uh, of, of 150 to 200 apiece. Then we also have observers from Australia, Mexico, Chile, Colombia, and Peru. Um, an observer or two, uh, in one case, I believe it's uh, the Chileans, they have, they have three, maybe four uh, observers at, at different points between uh, working you know, with the U.S. Navy as well as uh, observing the U.S. Navy as well as observing some of the operations going on here at Camp Pendleton. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. And and as follow-on, has the frustration uh, budget uh, issues um, downsized the number of participants? Um, it, it's caused us to to refocus some of the things that we've done. There have been some budgetary impacts. Um, uh, most specifically, we we because of the budget impacts, we're we're really focusing our efforts on maintaining those forward presence uh, capabilities, like our ARGMUs. Uh, you know the amphibious ready groups and the, the marine expeditionary units that are getting ready to deploy as those those important forward presence uh, units for the combatant commanders around the globe. So uh, we haven't put the numbers of uh, ships and everything into the into the exercise for um, the, the marine expeditionary brigade as we originally envisioned. But we were able to flex, and, and now we've uh, we've included the maritime prepositioning force. Uh, as, uh, as a very key element. Uh, it's another key expeditionary capability that we have. So it's now become one of the centerpieces of, of this exercise uh, as opposed to the pure amphibious nature that we once envisioned. Thank you very much, sir. And before I go any further, I think somebody else joined uh, during the general's opening statement. Uh, can I get your name? Yeah, it's uh, John Doyle from 4G War Blog. Thanks, John. Uh, and Kirk, you were next with your question. Yeah, hi, this is Kirk Spitzer with Time Magazine, and since I'm talking to you from Tokyo, I should probably say good evening to everyone, since it's midnight here. Um, General, appreciate you taking time. I just got a couple quick questions to talk about the Japanese and the amphibious operations. What is the most difficult thing to learn about amphibious operations? Yeah, Kobamwa, Kirk. Um, <laughs> uh, I saw your article, too, so, so thanks for that. Um, yeah. Uh, the most difficult thing, well, you know, I, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to sound trite here, but everything about amphib operations is pretty difficult. Right. The, the, the spectrums that you try and cover, uh, uh, you know, just, just you know, using the sea as maneuver space to, to gain advantages, uh, uh, you know, just, just the planning of that alone puts you in a multidimensional thought process. But, but where I spend most of my time, where, I, where I've spent my time in working with, with uh, uh, General Nozawa and Admiral Yuasa, who are my counterparts uh, on the Japanese side, uh, is, is that joint command and control, specifically for the ground forces, in, in trying to be aboard a ship, uh, put ground forces across the sea and then ashore and spread them out toward an objective, and still have an ability to understand what's going on uh, and then direct those operations from a ship uh, that may not have the same kind of communications bandwidth that you would have uh, in a, in a well-established ground environment. 
So mm -hmm. multi-spectrum command and control becomes very, very difficult, and it's where the general and admiral and I spend an awful lot of time in our conversations. I got you. How long does it take to develop some, a significant uh, degree of amphibious warfare capability? Something you can do in months, years, decades? How long does it take? Um, well, uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, you can develop a rudimentary capability in, in a matter of months, really. If you look at uh, some of the things that, uh, um, uh, that if, you, if you look throughout history, uh, you, you find forces that uh, got aboard ship and, and came off a ship on a foreign shore or on a, on a, uh, into, a, into a place that uh, uh, needed assistance. And, and you, can, you can do it in an admin-type mode really, relatively quickly. But if you want to be truly effective, if you want to really use the sea as maneuver space and gain an advantage, uh, a positional advantage, whether, whether in an HADR scenario, you know, that light, we talk about that light footprint ashore so you're not adding to, to already damaged infrastructure or, or adding stressors to auto, uh, already damaged infrastructure, or you're trying to uh, do kinetic-type operations uh, without, without having to put large forces ashore to, to achieve your objectives. Uh, that kind of, of graduate-level amphib work takes years to develop. And it's one of the things that we're seeing right now. You know, we've spent so much time ashore uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq in a sustained land operation that, that even those skills for, for the U.S. Marines and U.S. Navy have atrophied so much, which is, which is why this exercise is very important for us. Uh, get back to those amphib groups, get back to understanding expeditionary operations, light footprints ashore, uh, but still maintaining effectiveness at, at the point where you need it. Okay. Uh, if I can ask one more, uh, one we, more follow-up. Actually, we'll, we'll come. Kirk, we'll, Kirk, Kirk, we'll come. We'll come back right back around. We got to make sure we get through everybody, and we'll come. Okay, we'll I got you. Come back around, uh, Michelle. Good morning, General. Thank you so much for this time and opportunity today. This is Michelle from Military Matters. I would be interested to know uh, your opinion on the difference between uh, Don Blitz 2011 and present-day Don Blitz 2013 those who are participating in these endeavors and the difference in what they learned then and what they'll be learning now, or if there are a difference in those who were 2011 to 2013. Uh, hi, Michelle. Um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was in Afghanistan uh, when, when we did Don Blitz 2011, so um, I, I can't speak with pure authority on it, but reading some of the after-action reports, um, it, it really was a much more nascent capability. Uh, you know, I, I talked uh, just a minute ago about, about uh, kind of reinvigorating these skills. Dawn Blitz 11 was more that first step in doing this. And uh, we, we, we went aboard ship. We did a lot of academics. Uh, you know, a lot of that refamiliarization with command and control spaces aboard the ship. And while we did some landing-type stuff, it wasn't as, as significant as it was uh, in, in 13. Uh, Dawn Blitz, this is actually the second part of Dawn Blitz 13. In 13.1, uh, we did uh, some very uh, rigorous amphibious command and control both aboard the ship uh, as well as um, uh, using uh, some pretty robust simulation type capabilities. And, and uh, um, uh, we really wrung out uh, what we call our battle rhythm uh, for the, the, the interface between ESG3 and us, and that's something that we did not do 
uh, during Don Blitz 11. Uh, also, the level of coalition participation this year in Don Blitz 13 uh, is significantly greater. We had some observer, observers during 11, uh, but, uh, but during 13, this is, this is really unprecedented with the, uh, particularly the number of Japanese ships and the fact that we both have both Japanese and uh, a Japanese Navy and Japanese Army, as well as our Canadian partners and all the other, other all the other coalition partners that I talked about. That is, that is a significant difference uh, for us. I, I can get back to you if you want on some of the other nuances once I talk to the staff. But uh, I would just be curious to. Uh, that's what I'm curious to know on the ones that were possibly observers during 2011, and we have come much greater in what we are teaching, training, learning. If many of they were observers at that time and now they've come full force in their two-year endeavors in their own military and where we stand today with our coalition with them now with our Pacific Command. I, I know the Japanese in particular uh, were are, have planned much more robustly this year than they, they were observers, more observers in, in 11 uh, and, and here in, in 13 they are full uh, participants across the board. I, I'll ask Lieutenant Langley if you don't mind it we can get maybe get your contact information uh, and uh, and I'll make sure that uh, uh, that he gets you some of those the, all of the specifics on the differences between the partners because like I said I was in Afghanistan I'm not really sure. familiar with all of them. Michelle, I appreciate I'll, I'll, that. Yeah, I'll go ahead and send your information over to Lieutenant Langley, Langley for you. Very good, thanks. Yep, and uh, Paul, you were next. Yeah, thanks for speaking to us, today, General. Appreciate. It. Um, can you give us a sense of exactly what the Japanese are doing? Um, far as how many troops are actually, you know, participating in the amphibious operations and, and going ashore and operating with Marines? Um, yeah, yeah, like I said, they've got about a thousand troops out here. They've got um, um, representative uh, you know, units from from the Western Army um, uh, in Japan uh, who are really growing the Army's capability as an amphibious force. Western Army specifically focused on that. So what they're doing out here is they're working with uh, with one of their uh, flotillas, uh, and that flotilla has has added in their two two of their amphibious ships, uh, the Uasa and uh, um, I'm sorry, the Hayuga and the uh, uh, and the uh, Shimokita. Uh, they have soldiers uh, embarked, or they will next week have soldiers embarked aboard those two ships, uh, and they'll actually. Uh, work with one of our marine expeditionary units uh, in both planning uh, uh, amphibious um, uh, landings and amphibious raids, uh, and then they will also conduct their own amphibious landing and then an amphibious raid, and then they'll conduct some operations ashore while uh, the general from the Western Army, uh, General Nozawa, remains aboard the ship and, and exercises some of that command and control capability while the regiment is, is maneuvering ashore. Um, so so those, are, those are the kinds of skills that they're working on. Okay, and you mentioned uh, that B-22s are landing on the Japanese uh, amphibs. Are they actually landing and staying there for a time? Are they simulated landings? Or? Hey, Paul, I'm sorry. You, you came in a little broken up on that one. Could you could you sure. again? Yeah. With yeah, you mentioned that uh, B-22s are landing on the Japanese amphibs. Um, are they actually landing and, and staying there for a while, or are they simulated landings? No, they're, they're, they're live landings. We're going to take an MV-22, and we're going to land it on one of their what we call small deck amphibs, you know, an amphib with, with just a couple of landing spots on it. And then we're going to land it on their big deck amphib, 
And one of the things that the Japanese have asked us to do is, is demonstrate its utility in a, in a humanitarian assistance disaster relief type scenario where they could be removing casualties from, a, uh, from a, an impacted area and bring them aboard the ship uh, for care. So, uh, and then, uh, and then um, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it works on some of the different ship uh, spaces, see how it fits and and make sure that they can maneuver it, and then, uh, and then we'll take back off again and, uh, and return home. So the whole evolution will be a couple of hours, um, but, but it'll, be, it'll be an Osprey actually landing uh, on two of their ships to, to demonstrate that capability. And will this be the first time an Osprey lands on a foreign ship? Uh, no, we've we've done it before. I don't have the specifics for that. I do know that we have landed on foreign ships. I don't. We have not landed on a Japanese ship, but uh, but I know we've landed. And I, I'm sorry, I I don't have the specifics for you on that, Paul. But I do know we've landed on other ships before. That's fine. Thank you very much. And John, you are next. Uh, yes. Good morning, General. Um, two quick questions. I think we'll have pretty quick answers. One, um, I noticed uh, some of the observer countries, well, most of the observer countries are from Latin America, which is um, Southcom's uh, area of uh, responsibility. So I'm wondering, um, are they involved at all? Is there any kind of uh, liaison with Southcom? And secondly, how are you communicating with the senior Japanese officers? Are, are you speaking to each other in English or Japanese, or are you going through translators and, and possibly even uh, Further down uh, at the operative level, how are people communicating? Um, sure. Uh, first off, with uh, with our Latin American partners, yes, we are working through Southcom for their participation here, um, and and uh, we are hitting a lot of Southcom's objectives. Um, but I, one of the things I'll also tell you is we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of Latin American countries uh, throughout the Pacific as well. Uh, this isn't one-way partnerships between us and the Japanese. Uh, this is a broad coalition uh, that, that looks at our pivot to the Pacific uh, from, a, from a more global perspective and that uh, our South American partners are as uh, important in that coalition as our, our traditional, uh, if you will, Pacific partners that are out there. So, so when we talk coalition, when we talk pivot to the Pacific, it's, it's much more than just focusing on Asian countries. It's focusing with a broad range of coalition partners on issues that are applicable across the entire Pacific and even, even the globe. Um, as for your second question, lots of interpreters. Uh, I am blessed. I have a, a great, uh, a, literally a, a, an almost native-speaking lieutenant colonel who's by my side almost uh, all the time as we interface. But I will tell you, uh, you know, somewhat to my embarrassment, uh, uh, my Japanese partners are much more fluent in Japanese than I am in, uh, I'm sorry, they're much more fluent in English than I am in Japanese. Um, at the lower levels, uh, we have a number of translators around, although I am impressed with uh, the, the numbers of Japanese at all ranks that speak some pretty good English and allow us to get along, as do the rest of our coalition partners. You should hear the Canadians. <laughs> Thank you. And back around to Andrew. General Andrew. Did I just go lost? No, you're you're on still. So. Oh, good, thank you. Uh, General, the, Shim the Shimakata has LCAC available uh, capacity, and also I believe she's being modified for uh, Amtrak. Would this be the first amphibious landing the Japanese have done? No, I, I know they've done uh, amphibious landings uh, 
uh, in other places. Uh, you know, Andrew, I should, I should have it right off the tip of my tongue exactly where they've done them, but I don't. Uh, they've used the LCACs before. To my knowledge, though, this is the first time that the Japanese LCACs will land at Camp Pendleton. So we've, we've done a lot of work in making sure that, that they're familiar with the area here. Great. Thank you. Chuck. Yeah, uh, Andrew, uh, you might Google Guadalcanal to find out about Japanese amphibious landing. Um, General, um, the exercise caused a little bit of stir uh, on the Internet and in some of the newspapers in Japan, uh, coming as it does uh, during a period of some heightened tensions with the Jap with the Chinese over the Hanukus and in some of the other islands that have multiple claims to them. Um, can you speak to to any uh, any uh, I guess uh, orientation of, of this exercise toward um, perhaps uh, recovering an occupied island? Uh, yeah, um, sure, Chuck. I, this, this exercise has nothing to do with any scenario specific to retaking an island or, uh, or, or anything to do with the current geopolitical situation. This is a series of coalition partners working on, on uh, basic military blocking and tackling skills um, that happen to include amphibious skills, but we're also doing things like uh, 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 mortar shoots on, on our ranges here at Camp Pendleton, where uh, the, the Japanese are getting a pretty good workout in some of our mountainous terrain out here and uh, trying to learn how to land now, uh, you know, navigate uh, in some unfamiliar terrain. So, so no, this, isn't, this is not targeted in any scenario. This is coalition partners enhancing their basic military skills across a broad range of operations um, uh, and doing it in a, in a great environment. Thank you, sir. And on to Dale. Yes, sir. Um, how many uh, air assets are involved, and any, are any of those from uh, Japan or any other participants? Uh, yeah, the, the Japanese are the only ones that brought uh, any air assets with them. They, they have uh, some CH-47 Chinooks as well as some, um, some Apache helicopters. Uh, and then I've got my air capability as well. I've got, uh, I've got uh, three squadrons of MV-22s, uh, some other, other attack helicopters, uh, and I'll have some of my F-18s uh, playing in, in, in a smaller role. Um, uh, for some of the maritime uh, air defense force stuff, but uh, just just Japanese uh, and, and uh, U.S. Marine Corps uh, and some limited U.S. Navy helicopters uh, participating as well. Okay, thank you very much, sir. And Kirk, back around to you. Yeah, um, General, you mentioned earlier that you were uh, involved in Operation Tomodachi. Um, so you saw a little bit of the amphibious capability that the Japanese had or did not have at that time. Since then, how much progress has the JSDF made? I am very impressed with the progress that the Japanese Self-Defense Force as a whole has made in integrating uh, their Navy and their Army. Um, my, my counterparts, uh, Admiral Nizawa is out here 
doing, uh, uh, talking at, at about flag level issues, general, general and, and, and admiral level issues related to combining the Army and the Navy uh, to give them um, that, that better joint flavor as well as the uh, ability to command and control across both services. So um, I, I saw that nascent capability uh, there at Tomodachi. I saw them uh, understand that, that there was a lot uh, that they needed to do. And uh, uh, coming here, I am, I am very, very uh, uh, pleased is, is not, a, not a good word, but it's the only one that comes to mind. Uh, very pleased with, with how enthusiastic they've taken this on and how far they've come in real skills that combine their Navy and their Marine Corps, uh, their, their Navy and their Army. Okay. If I, have one, if I can get one more in, um, what's the single most important thing that they'll learn from Dawn Blitz? Um, that amphibious uh, command and control is probably going to be the most important one. I don't mean to keep coming back to that, but it, it really is the most important. Um, but, but it's also it's also seeing the Marine Corps. You know, one, the the great thing that, that the the, Marine, the Navy Marine Corps team brings to them is is working across the full spectrum of operations. We're at sea. We're we're ashore. We're in the air. Uh, we even have we've integrated in um, uh, special operations forces and other things. So so they'll see um, uh, Admiral Huber and I working side by side. Uh, with two different uniforms, but but of of a single mind out there, and I think that's going to be their most important takeaway. Great, thank you. And uh, sir, do you have time for any more questions? I do. Okay, Michelle. I would like to know if you could explain a little bit with this uh, MV22 landing that uh, I believe is going to take place tomorrow. Uh, Friday. Friday. Yeah, tomorrow. It's yes, today's Thursday. Holy cow! <laughs> yes, the week goes by quick. It does. With that particular exercise that will be taking place, how much will they be able to take away from that in and of itself, that endeavor, to an actual uh, like occurrence should it occur once we go back to our Pacific areas in the arenas? Will they be able to walk away and actually participate with our organizations or our other um uh, alliances in the Pacific area in short term, if something were to happen within six months to a year, would they be in a position and us be in a position to help them through that arena over there? Yeah, Michelle, I think uh, the most important thing that they'll take away is that the MV-22 uh, is a, a platform that can land on their ship. Uh, I mean, that's the immediate takeaway. Hey, this, this, this unknown uh, aircraft uh, that, that's gotten an awful lot of airplay in Japan uh, really is interoperable with our equipment. So that, that's the immediate takeaway. And then throughout the rest of the exercise beyond this landing, they're going to see the tremendous capabilities in terms of reach and speed and capability uh, that, that this platform can bring to them. And when you think about uh, you know, a, a nation like Japan, uh, that that is really an island nation spread over a um, uh, very important part of the Pacific, I'm hoping that they take away uh, from this the utility of that aircraft uh, in allowing them to reach the different parts of their country for, for the kinds of assistance that, that they envision doing. So there are a number of takeaways that, that we hope they'll get, but the, the most immediate is uh, this platform is interoperable with their ships. And they will walk away assuming that, we will always be standby alliance with them should anything occur 
hope that they would coalition with us right away, of course. We are, we are treaty partners. We have been treaty partners for years. Uh, and I will tell you that, uh, um, like, like many Marine officers, uh, my, my son grew up uh, for, for part of his life in Japan. Uh, we, are, we are more than just coalition partners. Uh, um, uh, it is, it is a, one of the most important alliances that our country has out there, as demonstrated by our response to Tomodachi and, and, and other things that we do with together. Yeah, our teamwork with the Navy and Marines is, is extremely important, and I like to see uh, our alliance partners uh, embrace that also. Well, thanks for that. We think, uh, we think that Navy-Marine Corps team partnership is very important, too, and I'm glad that, uh, that you think so also. And uh, Paul? Uh, yes. A uh, question about the special operations forces involved. Are there any Japanese special operations forces involved? And as far as the American go, are they uh, – Paycom or MARSOC, which part of the You know, they, the Japanese or, or any of our coalition partners don't have special operations forces as such. They will have recon, you know, reconnaissance elements and things like that. Uh, our, uh, our soft play is, uh, is kind of limited to uh, uh, some of our, our MARSOC teams, but more importantly, our ability to uh, have conventional Navy and Marine Corps forces uh, interface and support um, American special operations forces in a variety of, uh, of operations that, that kind of uh, complement what, what we as the conventional force need to do as well as support what the special operations forces are doing. Thank you. And one more question, sir, from uh, John. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, very quickly. Um, did the Japanese ground forces come over on the naval vessels, or did they fly over? And and because uh, you said something about them embarking, and I just wanted to clarify that. Yes, yeah, some of them came over uh, on the ship, and they they sailed from Japan. Uh, some of them actually met up in Hawaii. Some of them flew over. More of the senior ranking uh, folks uh, flew over uh, and, and met up in Hawaii, uh, and they came over as a consolidated force from Hawaii. Um, they actually, the Army actually had embarked their helicopters and everything in Japan and brought those over. So, so um, while they didn't all sail the entire way, they did, they did sail as a cohesive force from uh, Hawaii to here with everybody aboard. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome. Sir, with that, I think we're, uh, we're through all of our questions. And if, uh, if anybody should have any more questions, you can go ahead and email those to me, and I'll forward those along. Did you have any closing comments you'd like to make, sir? Uh, uh, Glenn, the only thing I want to say is, uh, first off, thanks for everybody's uh, interest and, and uh, some very good questions out there. Uh, as I said up front, this exercise uh, is, is a, a very important exercise for us in regrowing those Navy Marine Corps expeditionary skills across a variety of tasks. And I think, I think we're well on our way to accomplishing that. Um, um, Admiral Hu actually, I kind of wish Admiral Huber were here. He and I are going to meet up later today uh, down and watch our, our MPF operations. So, so really the Senate, I know we've talked a lot about the Japanese and coalition partners, uh, but really at the heart of this are growing those Navy and Marine Corps expeditionary skills uh, that are going to be very, very important, uh, not only as we shift to the Pacific, but as, as our military gets smaller, uh, and, and we have to look to those ready expeditionary forces to respond to a variety of crises around the world. This exercise is a centerpiece of, of making all of that uh, more than just words in, in actual reality. Thank you so much, sir, and thank you to everybody on the line who participated in today's Bloggers Roundtable. As right, usual, 
If you if you, anybody needs the uh, transcript or the audio file, the transcript will be up tomorrow. The audio file will be up later on today. Uh, that is again on DoD Live. Again, thank you to everybody for your time and participate participation. This concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time.